Welcome to the Legendarium. Drop it down to like 120 pages yes. or like some of that and put illustrations in it. Like that's what we are to the Wheel of Time. <laughs> We're the Reader's <laughs> Digest version. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to episode number 153, The Gathering Storm, part two. I am Also known as Craig Squeeing about Egwene for an hour. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to know what you mean by that verb. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> I am Craig Hanks, your host, and over there, uh, why do I hate him so much? It's because he won't stop scratching that stupid beard. Reminds me of something. It's Ken Johnson. I am a man. <laughs> <laughs> And his basement is full of chains and collars that he makes his guests call IDOM. It's Kyle Lemon. <laughs> well, just so you know, I am donating $500 to read Fifty Shades of Grey. So. <laughs> <laughs> you are more than welcome. Uh, and we finally learned what the channeling sickness is. Every time Rand reaches for Sidene, he gets a glimpse into the sick, twisted mind of Ryan Bruckman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very comparable to the taint. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so welcome back, everybody. We've uh, I, I'll I'll let you peek behind the curtain a little bit uh, because of scheduling issues. We had to record both episodes at once, so it is still <laughs> the same Sunday morning as when we recorded the last one. Hopefully, we've woken up a little bit and uh, and we'll have a little more energy. There's actually sunlight coming through the window of the studio. Which I'm not sure we know how to deal with. Yeah. It's because Rand just had his epiphany, and so the sunlight is so now coming through, shining down on us. Right. The shadows break, yeah. yes. Um, anyway, glad to have you with us. Um, before we get to everything, uh, patreon.com slash legendarium to support the show. And GoFundMe to support the studio itself, the construction thereof. And uh, reddit.com... Well, uh, dang it, I always screw this one up. TheLegendarium.reddit.com is where you can go join the conversation. And uh, I think that'll do it for housekeeping. Do you guys have anything you want to bring up? Your Any house is filthy. My house is... You know what? My house is filthy because it's Sunday morning, and usually Sunday morning is chore time, and you're here sucking up chore time, Ken. <laughs> so Impressive how do you feel sucking. about that? It's not the first time I've sucked. I try not to. Uh, I feel like I need to work the word squee back in here somewhere. <laughs> uh, okay. I strive hard to suck less. Uh, look, Ken. Uh, moving forward. Just, you're just, making the Let's just keep, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> this is not starting since, out very since well. I, since I caused the problems, can I get us back on track with a very public apology first and foremost to Varen? Um, you may. Because, I, oh, my gosh. Okay, so hang on. You know what? Okay, so you've made your apology. We'll get to Varen later. I'm not, I'm not ready to start with. Varen. All right, all right. I'm not ready yet. But no, that's coming. I've got I've got very pointed things to say about. So her. so the last time we talked, we kind of started with um, a lot of stuff about Sanderson versus Jordan, and I I don't think we have much more to say about that right now. I'm sure we will by the time we get to the end of book fourteen. But we can jump into the. I think there's one thing to say, but it's quick. So okay, go ahead. <laughs> It's as quick as the how quickly he's wrapping up certain storyline plots. Oh goodness, who was it? He kills somebody like right at the Masima. very Masima. Yes, it's like, like Fayil walks up, stabs yeah. him in the heart, which was awesome. By the it way. was awesome. Go uh, Fayil. I write. I wrote down the. Oh my gosh, do I like Fayil? All of a sudden, <laughs> like 
yeah, he, I can. You can just tell when Sanderson's starting this that he's going okay. I gotta uh, not gonna deal with that one. Not gonna deal with that one. So let's just get these characters out of the way. And so Masima gets a, gets stabbed in the heart and killed off. It's like, oh, I guess we're done with that because that that was literally my response as soon as that happened. I'm like, oh, I guess we're done with this storyline. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, on. I I could have applauded. If yeah. I if I wasn't reading in bed next to my sleeping wife. If only we can get her with Val and Luca now. Get who? <laughs> Fayo with Val and Luca. Oh, with Val and Luca. She, while she's in heart stabby mode, let's just get the hearts. <laughs> no, I just maybe she could turn that on herself. Maybe. For... Whoa, man! Take it easy. Take it easy. <laughs> Take it easy. Um. All right. So there is that. Are there any other rando uh, plot points that we want to talk about before? We get to the Egwene stuff. I, um, yes, um, I have a fun one. Okay. So, Matt marries Tuon in the last book, right? right? Officially, Officially, it's they're married, whatever. So, in this book, Tuon, after meeting Rand as Daughter of the Nine Moons, she said she could only meet him as Daughter of the Nine Moons because she couldn't meet him and set him as an equal if she had already taken upon the name of Empress. But when she becomes Empress, she has to choose a new name. The new name she chooses for herself is Fortuana, which is fortune, which means that Matt is literally married to Lady Luck. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Fortune. I don't I don't know what else to say to that. Just a fun yeah, just, just a little, fun little punchline. Just a fun thing. Uh okay. I like that. Anything else that you guys want to talk about? Uh non Egwene related? Uh did did you guys catch Avienda and Men's awkward meeting yeah that was, <laughs> that, weird. was that was fun i was like oh that's deliciously awkward um, there was another fun quote because it looks like ryan's looking for a quote real quick but uh -huh. so i'll jump in while he's looking um there was a fun quote that i was wondering and I, craig i talked to you about this at work i was yeah, wondering I probably, if i probably wasn't listening. if this was a like a, a little side jab from sanderson at uh at editing in general <laughs> okay because page that. 112 it's uh I can't remember who it, I don't know if it's if it's uh, Rodal Itteralda that's talking or if it's Bashir, one of the generals. I think it's Itteralda. But he says, the only neat battles were the ones in stories or history books. Those had been cleansed and scoured by the abrasive hands of scholars looking for conciseness. <laughs> and if there's one thing that Brandon Sanderson is not a fan of, it's, it's concision. concision. <laughs> they, you know, Proof is the Oathbringer 1,250-page oh book that could barely be bound. Behemoth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, anyways, it probably isn't, but I looked at it that way because I write at work all the time and deal with editors all the time, and I liked the way that he said the abrasive hands of scholars looking for conciseness. It's just a funny turn of phrase for me. Yeah, I, I doubt that he was thinking of editors. I think he probably was more thinking of actual historians and their um, ham-handed treatment. Sure. History every once is in a written while. by the winner. But that's that how thing. I took it, and that's how I'm keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have one. Yeah. Um, you know who used to be cool? You used to be cool, man. You? Um, no, I was never cool. <laughs> Gowan. <laughs> No, nope. I can testify to this for many years. <laughs> uh, Avienda. Oh yeah, Avienda used to be cool, and she does have a she has uh, a moment when she finally becomes a wise one, and that's uh, that's kind of interesting. But every time I got to an Avienda chapter, 
all I thought was um, that little that you guys ever see Remember the Titans when the little girls oh, yeah. are at the football game and finally the black one turns to the white one and she says, Cheryl, I do not care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. That's what I wanted to say every time an Avi and a point of view thing came up. I don't care. If it had been like one chapter where he kind of wraps up the wise one training, fine. Um, but he comes back to her like three or four times in the first half of the book and every single time it's exactly the same it's oh there are these punishments and i don't know what they're for cut to somebody else cut back to avienda oh man there are these punishments i wish i knew Mm -hmm. what they were for you know i think that and we mentioned this a little bit um i think that he was using avienda as a way to get into the mindset of the aiel culture because the aiel is very different from anybody on the other side of the dragon wall and this was something that was very jarring for me when i read was the way that he wrote Avienda's point of view chapters, she she kind of turned into a little bit more of a caricature of the lost in translation um, person. So like she felt like, you know, like in the first Thor movie when he shows up to Earth and he doesn't recognize anything and he's just like, this drink, I like it, I'll have another. Like he goes into the pet shop and he's like, I need a horse. And he's like, we only have gerbils. And he's like, well, give me one big enough to ride. Like the (laughs) the guy that doesn't understand where he's at, you know, same thing with like wonder woman where she's walking through and doesn't understand the culture. And that's, that's what Avienda in this book felt like to me. And I feel like it was probably Sanderson trying to get a grasp on what to do with the Aiel culture. Um, because it is so very different from every other character point of view that he's going to be doing. And so there was a lot of little jarring things where it's like Avienda spent enough time now within, um, you know, wetlander camps and around all of these different Aes Sedai and whatever that she's going to understand more than is, than is being let on. So it felt a little bit of a, a step backwards in terms of Avienda's character progression, but I also appreciate it for what it is to kind of remind the reader that it she is very different from the other channelers in the series. <sighs> this is and it's fine, whatever. This is an unfair <laughs> bias because of my love for Brandon Sanderson, but I have a feeling that that the the way that he's approached this is is on purpose. Yeah, he's, he's making there's a reason there's the redundancy in hitting the same points. And there's a reason that we're that we're having to deal with this conflict um, in Avienda, um, and you know, having been with the Wetlanders for so long. Mm, fine, just because there's a reason doesn't mean it's a good one. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, I have to pay you back for all the times you've said that I can coin something, but that doesn't make it currency. Yes. Um, <laughs> all right. So, do we dare get to Egwene now? Sure. Do it. Let's. All right. Do well, it. Do it. Let me throw one more thing. All right. Um, I feel like we're in the Shire with Matt and Tom and the quest to bring Moraine back. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Get to it. In in My the extended gosh. in the extended version. Yeah, it's like, come on! Why are they not there yet? You know, you need to do this. It was in, it was added a while ago. Well, don't worry. The tower is on the cover of Towers, Towers of Midnight, Midnight, so we're good to go. <sighs> yeah, I <laughs> having seen the artwork, I, I knew that's when we were going to get to it. But I felt like, guys, 
there needed to be a really strong reason for them not to be going on this really, really, really important quest right now. Yeah. That was the thing about about Knife of Dreams. I'm like, oh, we get Moraine back. This is awesome. I'm excited for the next book. And then I came across the cover of Towers of Midnight and went, oh, well, that sucks. Psych. <laughs> so I'm like, we got another book before that? Crap. I uh, and, and as I understand it, um, Sanderson gets his mat legs by the next book. And yeah. so uh, apparently that's a pretty good thing. Yeah. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to that as well, because I want my Moraine back. Can we? I want her heart. If they succeed, <laughs> please don't say that while you're holding. While it. you're holding that tape measure like that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I need. You know what? I hate those little fidget spinners that everybody's using now. Oh yeah. But I do like to fidget. I need to fidget with something uh, generally. Stop and stop so, fidgeting with that. Uh, <laughs> just wait listeners when, now you all know what we deal with when this is a when this is a youtube live uh broadcasts show um people are gonna ju- they're just gonna leave in droves we'll just after effects <laughs> a lightsaber on that there you and go so be aware of what you wish for holding yeah. a lightsaber i see your tape measure is as big as mine <laughs> yeah. so that that's one of my complaints really quick about all of the books is that they get they come across these things that this is really important we should get to that eventually. Yeah. Like, what's the point of having travelers if you don't get to the important things right now? Next week on I'll Wheel of you, Time. I'll tell you one thing uh, just that I was reminded of with this conversation, and that's that um, I understand the purpose of everyone's storyline, except Perrin's at this point. Why does Perrin exist? Perrin's entire storyline is long, drawn-out um, attempt to get him to accept command of what's going to eventually become Manetherin again. Well, that, it, that's all it is. And it just, or is it, it's taking forever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't understand why, why we need him around. He's going to be around for the last battle. We keep being told that, uh, we need him or that Rand needs him. Matt. I understand a little bit more. He being a great general and all this stuff. Um, and then, but parents shown some flashes of that as well. But then Matt also has his purpose of rescuing Moraine. Um, so he has things that I know he's going to need to do in coming books. And with Perrin, I'm sure that I'm going to get lots more Perrin in the next book because I didn't get much in book 12. Patience, Iago. And I'm just not, <laughs> I'm not looking forward to it. Perrin's, here's, this is kind of a, and we will touch on this again in 14, so that, but I feel like there's a little bit of a struggle with these last three because the idea originally was you were supposed to get all of those things that you're looking for in, in one, one book. book. Right. And so the fact that we're not getting Moraine back until Towers of Midnight um, set up that quest isn't happening. Like it was all intended to be in one. So, I mean, some of the complaint is just the fact that, well, you just wrote so dang much that now we have, we have to wait for it. So yeah. I suppose so. At least we're not, uh, at least we're not reading in real time where we had to wait a year or oh, two yeah. between books. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who would do that? Yeah, sorry, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we've, uh, as Bilbo might say, we've put this off for far too long. So, hang on. Um, no, to give you, hang on. No, no. <laughs> it. It's like two seconds. <sighs> to give He's you hope, to <laughs> Perrin is Sanderson's proclaimed <laughs> favorite character. So if you have faith in, in Sanderson, Perrin is his favorite character. So that should be something for you to look forward to in the parent story. I don't know. If Brandon Sanderson wants my trust, he's going to have to earn it someday. Okay. He's 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 only written 20 books that I've loved. Parents, parents always been, I've always been more 
partial to Perrin than the rest of you, so I'm excited about that. Mm. There's no accounting for taste, I it's suppose. because I am a man. Uh, okay. I Shut up, all of you, unless it's about Egwene. Let's talk about Egwene. So, we ended the last episode by talking a little bit about uh, Gowan and how worthless he is and, uh, and how he kind of ties into the Egwene storyline. Well, let's talk about what that Egwene storyline actually is. Ryan, what happens with Egwene in this book? So Egwene is currently being held captive in the White Tower, um, but she's being used as kind of this uh, figurehead for Elida as a, look, I, I, she didn't kill her, didn't steal her, and is using her as a way to try and showcase her power. And in doing so has given Egwene the opportunity to undermine her through working in the White Tower itself. And she's doing a very good job of it um, by basically just being beaten every day, multiple times a day, and accepting it. And talking to people about where the tower has gone wrong. So she's slowly undermining Elida from the inside, uh, which she's a genius. She's a genius in that and probably the most leadership I've seen out of her um, in that section. Um, and she does a great job of that. Gets over the White Tower pretty much on her side, ready to topple Elida. Has a great showdown with her where she calls her, says, I would name you Dark Friend, but I think that would be the, an insult, insult to Dark, dark Friends. <laughs> it'd be an insult to the Dark One is he wouldn't even want to be associated with you. And then it all goes to pot when these Shan Shan attack. And boy, do they attack. Yeah, they attack, and we get rid of Elida. And <laughs> and what did you say, Ken? Elida Mani. Elida Mani. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and then um, Swan and uh, Gareth Brynn and Gowan come and rescue her from the... Uh, provide an unneeded rescue, even though she'd been telling them not to come rescue her. And her work is... Severely damaged by that. Turns out rescue. it's not that damaged, or or is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it turns out it's not. She goes back to the rebel camp, or she's taken back to the rebel camp, and she thinks, "Ah, oh, well, now I have no choice but to attack the tower and take it by force." And right as they're about to do that, the tower, Aes Sedai, the sitters, or it was it the sitters or the heads of the Ajas? It was the. Um, whatever they yeah. come and they say we want Egwene to be our our, our Amarlin seat please don't burn us down um, and so they don't burn them down but in a very I said I fashion it's not it's not please don't burn us down it's we name her officially the right way that she's the Amarlin seat right. so she can be recognized as the way that it's supposed to happen and one of my least in one of my least favorite Egwene moments she goes full I said I that way too yeah and she uh, she says oh well now I'm a Officially, the Armelin seat, and I'm censuring all of you rebels who ran. F you! Dude. I will formally no, no, accept your apology. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That was Shut one up. moment where. Okay. I look. I love Egwene, but I'm not going to defend everything she does. It's how she treats people. That is, is the problem with Egwene, and this is what she's doing. She's treating all those rebels like garbage. The ones that made her the Armelin seat in the first place. Yeah. Well, but then you think of why they made her the Amarlin Seed. Sure, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with her not, uh, not treating them with the respect she, that they think they deserve. Sure, that's her, fine. Her reasoning, there's foresight in it. Like I understand her reasoning for doing those things. It doesn't mean that it's not a total dick move to do. Yeah, it's still, but it's needed. Right. Sometimes you need that dick. <laughs> so here's my question: I was trying to avoid <laughs> is doing that. <laughs> Is the way that she treats Suan needed? Yeah, that's... So tell me what she does to Suan. 
So basically, she tells Suan how useless and insubordinate she is because Suan, you know, started this whole rescue Egwene thing and came in and rescued her. And so she treats Suan like garbage after the fact, even after she is proclaimed Amerlin by the official White Tower. And she sits there and berates Suan even in front of Gareth Brynn. And yeah. she says something to Brynn about how, like, you know, you're not going to be able to keep her out of trouble and she's the worst person ever. And I'm going to send her to penance and do all these things because she couldn't even listen to simple instructions about not rescuing me, which in my opinion, when they rescued her, Egwene was like passed out from all of the power exertion anyways. Cause she got her plus one wand. Of, yeah. She of got super her exact. Right. And so plus one. who's like, to say that had they not shown up that some, uh, Mar- or some, uh, Suldam on a Toraken wasn't going to show up and click a thing around her neck while she was passed out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's a little bit ungrateful and and the I, way that she treats her I am, rescuers I am, is I am happy horrible. to apply the word uh, ungrateful to a grain. Right. That, that seems... And I feel totally like it's an, abu- oh, it's an abuse of power for her to sit there and berate Suan for rescuing her friend. She's putting her friend first. And in, so, and Egwene will never do that. She never a, puts people yeah. as her priority. Well, and it's in a situation that ultimately didn't matter because she was, she was pissed that oh, we just ruined the chance for us to reunite the tower, which you didn't. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it didn't matter, and so you should get let her off the hook now. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe you know, it's like, well, yeah, you you disobeyed, but no harm, no foul, you know, because really there was no problem. It. And, and it, it felt a little bit disconnected to me also that she would dress her down so bad. Because so this has been her biggest advocate. That, but like, I, here's the thing where I say, like, I understand some of the reasoning. It sets a dangerous precedent for her. Um, and she's got to walk a very fine line now in terms of trying to reunite. Just because everyone's back together doesn't mean everyone is happy back together. Sure. Right. So she's got to walk a very, very thin line, which is why I'm very, I was very impressed with her decision in Keeper. Yes. In, yeah, and she should be commended for that. Absolutely, that, yeah, that was a that. fantastic decision. But I do agree. Like I do agree that I, it frustrates me. I mean, if you go back, I I really get frustrated when some of our main characters make stupid decisions. Uh, not stupid. Make decisions that put that are that lessen the value of other people, or that showcase that they don't value other people very much. Like, you know, back with when Rand said, "Well, you got to hang this guy." Like, there's other aspects that were. That I feel could be incorporated Ooh, in book five callback. Wow. Yeah, and nice. in this one, like Egwene, absolutely needs to make sure that Swan understands her place and that she disobeyed and everything. But you don't necessarily have to dress her down that much for it, mm-hmm. you know. So tell me, here's a quote from Egwene. Tell me if this sounds like Egwene or if this sounds like Elida. We're going to play a game. Egwene or Elida? <laughs> Egwene or Elida. Oh, yeah, you've given it away. Well, yeah, but that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> Do your best to keep her out of trouble, General, Egwene said, staring Suan in the eyes. She has been in quite a bit of it lately. I have half a mind to give her to you to use as a foot soldier. I believe that the military organization might be good for her. And remind her that sometimes obedience overrides initiative. So she's basically ruling with an iron fist, saying well, she needs no. to obey my word absolutely. No, 
Yeah. I don't buy it. That, well, I, it's I, in the book. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that was a quote. No, I, <laughs> I, um, I'm not disputing that that was uh, harsh and unseemly in many ways, but it doesn't sound like Elida to me. It sounded much more sensible than Elida. Here's here's my uh, how I think of Egwene. There are all these characters who are doing all of these different things across Randland. Uh, Egwene is, in modern parlance, our CEO. Egwene is the person that uh, everybody who is... Um, everybody loves to hate her. You know, the, the, she's the CEO. She makes too much money. She has too much power. Um, she doesn't understand the little people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, think of how we talk about CEOs. Well, that's fine. But this person had, you know, a, a CEO creates a company that employs thousands upon thousands of people and uh, is ultimately a force of uh, stability and good in, in those people's lives. Well, similarly, Egwene, without Egwene, the White Tower would have broken and then the uh, the rebel camp would have broken between the two factions. Uh, Ramonda and Lelaine, she holds the camp together. She goes and repairs the White Tower. She creates something that is of value to people. And, you know, you can love her or hate her, but without her, uh, things would fall apart for the Aes Sedai as an organization. Now, sure. as we've yeah. stated before, that may or may not be, uh, you know, a good the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but sh- I, I, I just have a hard time saying, like, Oh, I, I hate Egwene. She's worthless. She doesn't oh, do I, anything. I, I don't think like, I've ever said that she's worthless. Yeah. I think that the difference is that, you know, you say that, you know, with the CEO analogy, she doesn't understand the little people. It's not that she doesn't understand the little people. She doesn't care about the little people for being people. She's the sort of CEO that would be like, yeah, we need to be open on Christmas. Deal with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> so when I say I hate Egwene, I don't like Egwene as a person. I think that she is a very strong and needed Amerlin, and I think that she does serve a very valuable purpose, but one, it doesn't mean that I like her. One thing I will say in defense of her in that argument where she's dressing Swan down is it's still... She is, for being as much Aes Sedai as she has become, she still has the... Two Rivers girl side of her that gets a little impetuous and a little more emotional. Like, truly, if she was like pure Aes Sedai, it would have been a very calm, neutral, you know, logical almost, mm-hmm. you know, dressing down, or whatever. But no, this was a my friend pissed me off thing. Yeah. And so we get to see a little like she still has a human factor for even for the fact that she is, mm-hmm. she is, has become this CEO figure sort of thing. But you know, I, I will give her that in terms of I'm willing to let some of the some of that slide because it's an emotional response sure. to something. And that, that was my hope is that it was more of a public dressing down type thing. And then we find out in Towers of Midnight that, you know, in private, oh, yeah, we're still we're cool, you know, and, and you're still one of my most trusted advisors, just not officially my most trusted advisor, you know. Mm. OK, um, you can. Yes. You know how you like action scenes? I like action. Tell me about the Action's action scene fun. in this book. It was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for that report. There you go. All right. <laughs> All right. So Kyle. <laughs> no, it, I I thought uh, it was very Sandersonian. I mean, in that here it comes and... Uh, okay, use your well, words, buddy. I'm, I'm working on it. Hang man. in there. Don't I'm, let it throw you. I'm working on it. 
he's he's very he's a very descriptive writer. I mean, he's Sanderson is is one of the best at writing action sequences that that you're going to find, and the way that he meshes, you know, what's going on in the insides of the tower, and here come these tow rock, and and you see. You, you, basically you can like feel explosions happening as they're as he's writing him. It's, it's it's i don't know I, I can't really put it into words i guess because <laughs> one my thing brain because you're no sanders one thing that he yes, does exactly. really well is he he preemptively eliminates any i mean plot hole for lack of a better word but like he thinks through a scene really well so the idea that okay Egwene has been given fork root tea but I need her to do this really awesome thing with the power. How do I get somebody who's inhibited by fork root T to have immense access to the one power? So he goes through and thinks through, okay, I'm going to have her teach all the novices how to link. And so the novices start linking. Okay. Now that I've got enough power that I can at least make a gateway because I've got enough people linked to her, I'm going to have her go down into the store of Angrial and Sangrial down in the basement and grab the, wand of plus one superpower one you know whatever and she goes to a hole in the wall and plays duck hunt with a bunch of Torah. <laughs> exactly yeah. so she does that and so i like that he thinks through that and it's it's very um present in the scene with rand as well um right before he decides to go almost destroy the world Nynaeve is seeing how he opens up one gateway and it's to like a place just a little bit behind them on the road. And she's like, okay, why did he open up that gateway? Because then he opens up another gateway immediately to right outside Farmotting where he wanted to go. And he explains through the fact that, oh, you can actually open up a gateway from somewhere that's not that far away. And then you've learned that place. And that allows you to open up a gateway to wherever you want to go because the idea that your limitation for gateways is you have to learn the place where you are first. So I really like that he thinks through those things. And that's what I think helps pay off a lot of those action sequences is that the lead or the reader doesn't get lost in like, wait a second. I thought, I thought Egwene just took fork root tea two hours ago. Why is it that she's now this super badass on top of the white tower? He explains through that in a very logical you know, sequence. And then it's like, okay, sweet. And that's, that's what helps the, where we talk about how he ramps up the action to one level and then the next level and then the next level. That's the style of which, in which he does it. Yeah. That, he, that's exactly what I was going to say. He's, totally. <laughs> <laughs> he's, back. he's really strong at taking the boundaries of a magic system and figuring out how to live within them, but turn them in a way that hasn't been, that, that is not normally used. And I, the whole thing with the gateways. I don't know if Jordan wrote, like if that's something that Jordan wrote in the notes that they figure that out, or if that's something that Sanderson sat there and went, you know, if I needed it, let me think about this. If I need to do that and makes that work mm-hmm. because I, I, I feel that's a very Sanderson thing to do mm-hmm. is to, Absolutely. to look it at did. this system and go, how can I, what we've been seeing over 11 books, how can I make them realize some things that might've been from the age of legends? Well, something and, like that. and, and, and a lesser writer. So like if, if it was turned over to any of us, we'd be thinking, okay, now I got to go gateway to, to farm modding from this place. Mm-hmm. And we'd open up a gateway and we'd go. And we'd completely disregard the fact that there's been this subtle, you know, insistence on you need to spend an ample amount of time in a location. So there is a restriction on this superpower. You probably just pass, you know, right. And so much time passed and then they open the and gateway. Where this isn't his brainchild. He hasn't you know, started it from the first and bring, brought the story all the way through. 
to not overlook really fine details like that is a credit to his ability to to wrap his mind around this. Yeah. So, anyways. one of the things he does in this action sequence is he uh, finally gets rid of Elida, and Elida. That's, we, the, that's the best part of Elida. The uh, you know, I was thinking about that. I and this is kind of a tribute uh, to Robert Jordan, and I know that I mentioned this way back in our book two discussion. But uh, his description of the Idom, of the Suldam and Damani and all that stuff back in book two was so good that, um, that I very much feel Egwene's fear when it comes to the collar going around her neck. And when it came time for Elida to be taken captive by the Shanchan, she gets the collar clipped around her and then she wakes up on the Torakan and she's flying around and uh, she realizes what's happened to her and she's vomiting over the side and everything i i uh i am second to no one in my hatred of elida and i still felt like this is uh this is cruel this is worse than death kind of thing. exactly yeah this is um it's uh it was really really horrible and so credit robert jordan i suppose for holding that over for so long from the very beginning of the series to where this uh, character that I think I probably hate more than any other. Um, well, no, I guess I hate Cad Swain more than Elida, <laughs> but no, but Cad Swain or sorry, but Elida is, is uh, utterly awful and we hate everything about her and she needs to be deposed. And then this happens and you're like, Whoa, whoa slow down. This is too much. Mm-hmm. Just, behead her or Be put her in prison or whatever building. but this is uh, this is a lot this so, is actually i can i i feel pretty proud the fact that this i actually called this back a few books uh, in a podcast episode a few books back that she needed I, I think i said that she needed to end up in a collar or that she needed to end up being to learn what to did. learn yeah to do that and i don't i i'm on the same side with you like i the idea of the item and all of that i just i it's disgusting and despicable, and I hate all of it. Yeah. But I could not see another end for her that didn't require a redemption arc. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I was, I, when I read that she got taken and she was on the tow rock and everything, I was like, uh, yeah, that, 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 that feels right. But at the same time, part of me also sat, sits and goes, well, the Sean Chan are probably going to be part of the last battle. Maybe she makes an appearance there or something like that. Right. Yeah, but she, the way that Brandon Sanderson is getting rid of other plot lines, too, she, she may not. I could just as easily say, "Nope, she's gone. Mm-hmm. She gone." I <laughs> um, I think I made this comment on an earlier episode, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself too closely. But uh, this is it. Also ties into when Rand um is uh, he he almost kills Tam, and then he really he goes crazy and he goes to whatever city it is he goes to. And uh, and he's about to bail fire an entire freaking city to kill the to, to kill the Shan Chen army, um, and he looks around and he realizes that everybody is in this city is pretty content. Mm-hmm. Uh, trade seems to be happening fairly well. You know, thing things are are uh, if not normal in this world, at least stable. And he sees this Shan Chen influence uh, that makes it so, and. Um, and so it's kind of this moment of, ah, oh, well, you know, maybe the Shan Chan aren't so bad. Maybe their presence here isn't so bad. Uh, and then he kind of has a stray thought about, eh, but what they do to channelers yeah. 
is beyond the pale. And I think it's good to have that reminder every now and then where we're tempted to think, okay, so the Shan Chen, I guess they aren't that bad. And we've spent some time with Tuan and she has good rapport with Matt. And we see what they bring to the cities and the countries that they conquer, uh, which is stability. But, but there is something that they do that is so awful, so, so evil, yeah. that uh, that uh, it, it overrides anything else that they do. And they have to be stopped for that reason. It's right? like that old, say what you will about Hitler, but at least the trains ran on time. No, that was Mussolini. Or Mussolini. Either way. <laughs> The analogy still works, but yeah, yeah it, 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 it is interesting because we're led to, we're led to believe from the very beginning that the Sean Chan are this insidious, you know, evil society that's going to overrun the entire good section of, of the world, you know, and stuff. And then you see how, you know, how they treat other leaders of the places they conquer, like, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, who Beslin. Beslin. Thank you. Who's the head of Ibadar. And, uh, she says, you know, you, you get to you get to rule. We're not here to rule. We're just here to govern. And uh, you're you're welcome to be in any council that you feel like you need to be ahead of. You're the ruler here. Look, we, we treat you guys well. Everybody's content, um, except for those who, you know, we put in those insidious callers. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I mean, we're still good. You know, so you, you sort of get that conflict now, you know, and now Rand's getting it. It's like, well, look, they're not so bad. Oh, but they are so bad. So yeah. where are we supposed to put the Shan Chan? Where do you stand on the uh, the Sean Chan prophecy about Rand having to kneel to them? I I've thought about this um, because it's I because mean it's I, almost the same prophecy as the Corathian cycle, but there's a, the only difference is that there says that he will kneel to the crystal throne. This is where I come around on it, and I I can't reconcile the the um, Demani yet. I'm not sure how to reconcile that, but I thought oh that means when I first heard that I thought oh he's gonna he's supposed to kneel before them as a, as a servant or as a, you know, under duress or something. But then I thought, well, what if that means that sometime during the last battle there, you know, things look hopeless. They're, they're kind of in, in fear of, of getting run over by the dark forces. And then the Sean Chan comes sweeping in, save the day and Rand bows to the crystal th- throne in gratitude for, for coming in and saving saving the day. Could be something like that. I was thinking of um, perhaps uh, he goes to them preemptively for help in the last battle and they refuse and he, you know, essentially begs for help yeah. from them. It could be something like that. That was uh, my initial thought too until their meeting went so sideways. One thing I'll say about prophecies is be hesitant to take them all at face value. Yeah. So Rand will at certain at some point have no more knees he'll get them blown off by a forsaken <laughs> sure uh, take it at face value unless they're mints and they always happen there's kind of something now that does uh would take someone's knees off would blow someone's knees off so yeah a dragon the the cannons yeah. yeah which i love that that has been i love seeing the technology progress in this world and seeing the cannons in there because that's a huge thing for warfare. I mean, <laughs> admittedly, yeah, you've got the one power. That's There's a lot of stuff with that. But for everyone else who doesn't have the ability to weave crap, now you have something that... Oh, if I could weave crap, <laughs> boy, that would change my life immediately. Ape magic users weaving crap. But yeah, this, is, this world is progressing in its type of warfare. And 
we know that that usually causes big problems and thankfully it's just in time for the final battle which hopefully hopefully the good side gets to use them one yeah, of my, that's true. One of my favorite tropes in all of fantasy and science fiction is magic versus technology. I, so I, it's exciting to see technology kind of catch up with magic. Um, or in the case of Sanderson, technology through magic. Through magic, yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about more things because we've got a few more minutes um, left. At, do we want to leave Egwene behind? Is there anything else we want to talk about as we far need to as talk her about, becoming Omerlin? We need to talk about Varen, which is kind of that's yes, exactly. crap woven into Egwene's story. Crap woven. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, what do you what do you mean by that? No, Kyle? just that we're using the term weave crap. So I okay. figured we'd weave that in there. Okay. Um, <laughs> so Egwene, uh, she's freed from her imprisonment, and she goes back to her novice quarters and finds Varen. And Ken, this is where you get to make your apology well, and, and she, to me directly. Why do you directly? Because why? I've always loved Baron. I know you have, and I. Well, and it was. It's funny as I read that, and she shows up, and she says, "By the way, your dress is green." And all of a sudden, like, wait a second, <laughs> she's Black Aja. And I, I immediately texted. I didn't know where you were in the book, so I texted these guys and said, "I knew it. <laughs> I knew she was Black Aja." Then, I called it books and ago. Then two paragraphs later, and you then went, two paragraphs oh, like, oh, oh wait. That's oh, why that's I, interesting. As soon as I got his message, I was like, where are you? Keep, keep <laughs> reading. Yeah, did you just read it that she's Black Aja? I, or I had to, are you... I had to stop in the middle of that conversation. I think I was reading at work or something, and, and I was done with my lunch break, and I caught up with Kyle, and I'm like, oh, dude, I'm in the middle of this Varen chapter, and she just revealed that she's Black Aja. But I think there's going to be a turn, and sure enough. Like sure enough, two there was a turn, later, and... And I was still, even when she said, oh, look, and here's how I'm going to justify being like Black Aja. I was like, no, no, you can't get out of this. And Oh. Yes, you can. That's that's pretty smart, actually. And then, so so by the end of that chapter, I was really just full into, I, I really owe Varen an apology for the last, you know, eight books of, of vitriol toward her. I mean, I knew she was off. I mean, it was clearly, clear there was something more to her, but to, to find out that she... Basically, under duress, had to swear to be Black Aja or die, and she didn't want to die, which can't blame her for that. But then to take that and make lemons out of or lemonade out of lemons and say, "Well, I'm going to learn everything I can," and at the very last minute, use this little loophole to to yeah, reveal all your dirty secrets. Great loophole! Oh, it was fantastic. Um, back in book four, I think it was when uh, there's the battle in the two rivers, and Varen and Alana were there. Kyle, you were pointing out like. Uh, untruths that there have been lies told. Do you happen to remember that? Because I don't remember them off the off the top of my okay. head. I, I, I could probably remember what, given the context of the conversation. I'm sure I could remember what it was, but yeah, okay. They were, yeah, I was just I'm just trying to think. Like, they okay, were, yeah, and this is where doggone it, I hate so much about uh, the fact that now I need to go back and read. All this is four million. This words is again. why the rereads are so much better for things like this, and yeah. there's so many of them. Yeah. So many, more than just Varen and. Because I want to, I want to know what it was that uh, it, that she said that was untrue back in like book four. Anyway, well, yeah. so go back also when one of our super early podcasts we talked about. We all asked everyone, you know, what based Aja on what we know, want? what Aja and Kyle was like. I think I'd do. I'd be black. I was like, what? <laughs> there's got to be something coming down the road there that that you know the black Aja was you know, formed and there was some group in there that, you know, they're going to show up and be like, we joined the Dark One to learn his secrets. And so it ended up being true that 
but it was just one. I was kind of mm -hmm. hoping that it would be this like subgrouping of the black Aja, you know. The, the... So not so not only is there subtle foreshadowing within the Wheel of Time itself, but here on the Legendarium podcast, we're foreshadowing for you. You know, readers. it's almost like we're as good as just reading the real thing, aren't we? Almost. I would say so. I think that uh, I think we're on a, a sort of artistic level. Um, hundred percent more taint jokes. <laughs> <laughs> we are the. I don't know how many people remember this book series, but the great illustrated classics. Do you remember? Did you ever read any of those? I don't know. You. They would take the like what? Oh wait, like uh, I, I think Count I of Monte Cristo, Count of, yeah. Three Count of Monte Cristo, and they was would the first they would like it. drop it down to like hundred and twenty pages yes. or less something that, and put illustrations in it. Like that's what we are to the Wheel of Time. <laughs> We're the Reader's <laughs> Digest version. Oh my gosh. But yeah, so so Varen's whole thing about, you know, she drinks the tea, she reveals um, the whole Black Aja under whatever, under, underground network that's going on. But one of the coolest things I thought in that whole sequence was the whatever Turangrial that makes that book disappear. Yeah. It was super the, cool. Just like a cool little like. The little bookmarks where you, you just twist the bookmarks and boom, it and disappears. The book disappears, but. Anyways, just want to call attention to that. Which but, you also, know, praise, praise be to the soft magic, right? Yep. Right. You can end up doing whatever you want with it. Which also, this is a, since we're connecting Varen here, remember, she also dropped a letter to someone. Mm -hmm. Wait, yeah. Oh, yeah. So with very, very specific constructions. And it's, she even said, if everything goes the way that I want it to go, I'll okay. come back and get the letter, which we now know is she was originally trying to go to the White Tower to get the oath rod to see if she could remove her dark friend Black Aja oaths and mm -hmm. not reveal all of the, everything that she revealed. And when she couldn't find the oath rod because they had it with the other Black Aja hunting group, mm -hmm. right. she decided yeah. she needed to reveal all of this to, to a, a Gwaine. And now that means Matt, if he's true to his word, will open the letter after 10 days or he'll wait, I think it was 30 days. 30 days. Whatever. Yeah. To yeah. do anything. So. Oh, man, I completely forgot about the her and Matt scene. How did that happen? Jeez. Yeah. Didn't she leave uh, letters for other people too, not just Matt? I thought uh, she left them for a series of she people. She might have, but it the Matt one is the one that jumps out at me just... Well, because it was actually on the page. Well, and knowing now that she's Black Audra, but she's trying to help the side of light by providing information, that tells me that that letter is... It's probably information like what she gave to Egwene, something that they need to know. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of like, Matt, open the letter. Matt, open the letter. Matt, open the letter. Open it. <laughs> open it. What do we do now? Okay. Yeah. That joke has been played out. Uh, no. Okay. I will be very interested to see what's in the letter. Yes. And so one of the things, too, is like just the amount of members of the Black Aja that she yeah. reviewed. It's uh, like yeah, over was, 200. 200, a little over 200. And I think, I think when we started, we said like the the count of total Aes Sedai in the tower before the split and everything. It was like 800? was like, yeah, seven or 800. Or like so we're talking about, you know, 30% of the White Tower or 30% of all Aes Sedai are dark friends. And yet somehow That's because of crazy. the way they're organized, they're able to keep it relatively secret that even if one is caught like mm -hmm. it's not this plethora it, you have to get that many of them in order to get to clean it out because if you only catch one or two mm -hmm. you're not going to get any more and, than another than maybe one or two and more. this is this yep. is something i don't know i'm probably treading on thin ice here with Egwene and and craig and their their love affair <laughs> mm, squee <laughs> <laughs> so part of the reason why Egwene can convince the hall 
that like she needs to be Amerlin is because she reveals the black Aja to them. Right. Right. At yeah. the end. That doesn't, that doesn't just happen. That wasn't in her plans. That kind of falls into her lap mm-hmm. right at the end. And she makes the most of it. She makes the most of it to her credit. She As makes a good CEO. would. She right? makes, she absolutely <laughs> Thank you very makes, much. no, and that's, that's not what I'm arguing. She absolutely makes the most of it. However, it felt a little like now Egwene's going to get all of this credit for ousting the Black Aja when really the credit goes to all the work that Varen did. They're, Which they're is, all about getting, or they're all about she, taking credit for other people's work, though. I mean, all those Tarangri, all that they made through sure. the help of Mogidian, you know. Well, Which is she, interesting also. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I feel like she's trying, doesn't she try to like protect Varen's... Did she tell people that Varen was no, black? She, no, she, she says, told like, somebody. one or two people. She said, a dark friend revealed this to me, whatever. But, like, the way that she said it, she didn't have to reveal it to Varen. And, yeah, anyways. Yeah. Because, yeah, her taking credit for it in a small sense, uh, I think is her also trying to protect Varen's legacy. Mm-hmm. Although, I, quite frankly, I think if you want to say that you went undercover as a double agent for the and the, provided us all that information that makes it. Yeah, I think it's okay to say that at this point, especially because she's dead. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Okay, I uh, like the a stunning I, forty-eight from the red. I'm like, was it really that stunning that the most came from the red? Eh. I, I didn't think so. Yeah, I but I I do want to move on because we have only about ten minutes left to go, and we've got a few bullet points that we need to get through. For instance, I glossed over. Uh, in the last episode, the fact that, yes, there are some things that happen with Matt and Perrin in these books. Or in this book, sorry. Uh, and one of those things is Hinderstab. Ah, uh, Hinderstab. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, my question is, uh, it, it was interesting. It was a, it was certainly a fun chapter to read, but uh, it didn't feel like it had much point other than, hey, that was a cool chapter. Uh, it was almost like Sanderson wrote, uh, sat down and said, I have a writing exercise I it, want to go through. Some fan fiction with Matt or something. It feels mm-hmm. like the two points of it were, A, to give give a little something to simple folk like me who you know just want to see some some scratching some and gnarling. Good old-fashioned violence. From some, some senseless and ultimately pointless violence that just resets at the start of every morning. Uh, but the other thing it does that I think is more important is it shows that there's a snag in the pattern. That this is the spot oh, where yeah. the pattern That's is, true. is shows the breakdown of the pattern. Yeah. That there is that. I think yeah. you can argue for and against. So I think like I, to, I, and I'm not arguing. Against. No, not not to either. I mean, I think that if you're on the side of you know we said we talk about this later on in the next couple of books. Did it really need to be three whole books to finish? Because apparently Jordan was going to finish it in one. Did it really need to be three? This is where you could argue this is a scene that's, although super fun and engaging, and we I, I don't think that there's anybody that doesn't like this scene. Could you entirely cut out this scene and have it you know, affect the, the overall story? Mm-hmm. Like, it wouldn't affect it in any it way if you completely removed it, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but that being said, it is a really fun chapter to read, or a couple of chapters to read. Um, it gets you, it gives you a little bit of a climactic, um, scene in the middle of some stuff that's a little bit more mundane. Um, it also, so it functions as a pacing as a pacing point. Sure. And to Ken's point there, it does help us also see the ramping up of the unraveling of the pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've seen bubbles of evil up to this point, little things that happen, but in, as a whole, things still feel pretty stable. This is uh, one of the bigger signs that 
this world is literally crumbling mm-hmm. apart at the at its seams. Absolutely. So. Um, all right, next bullet point. Uh, okay, foreshadowing for the next book. There was, or yeah, probably the next book. There's a moment when Matt is talking to Talmanis. Uh, he's Talmanis is amazing. I love Talmanis. <laughs> um, they're in. I I think it was. I think it was actually in Hinderstap. It might have been, but um, Matt is losing all of his games. Yeah, he's losing all of his throws, and uh, he says, "Don't look so grim. This is what I wanted." Talmanis raised an eyebrow, lowering his mug. Matt said, "I can lose when I want to, if it's for the best. How can losing be for the best?" Talmanis asked. And uh, boy, did that sound like a bit of foreshadowing to me. Matt is going to have to lose in order to gain sometime in the future. I'm so that's that's my prediction. There's going to be some sort of major loss. It's probably going to have something to do with the uh, retrieval of Moraine. Has has to do when they return to Finland. Finland? He's already been told uh, something like that in the past. What, what was that? He's already been told once before that he will have to give up half the light of the world. Oh, that's right. In order to, 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 save, to, the save, to save the world. Yeah. So you're you're right. Congratulations. <laughs> so you're right just a few books earlier too. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I wasn't paying attention then. At least I'm paying attention now. <laughs> and uh yeah. I I uh, That's what I always say to my wife. At least I'm paying attention now. So I want to talk bring up another bullet point and jump off of Matt for a minute and jump on to the <laughs> to the meeting between Tuan and, and Rand. Okay. And the idea that there's a couple of scenes in this book, both during this meeting and when he basically officially goes to Darth, officially Darth Rand. Mm-hmm. And he says something along the lines to Cadswain in that first meeting. Do you think that if I, if I just willed it, that you, that I could kill you just by willing it, like that I don't even have to channel that if I willed it, the pattern would make you die. And he kind of does the same thing. Um, when he's with Tuan is he starts focusing on what he needs the most. And as he like goes into like super calm Zen mode and says like, you will do this, you will do that. Tuan starts to feel like the tugging of the, the tugging of the Taviran ness. And so like we are seeing Rand actually manipulate the pattern real time. Um, and he's starting to become aware that he can do that. And this is, completely separate from wielding the one power or the true power or whatever else it is. It always says that this dragon reborn is one with the pattern. Now that is completely terrifying in this, in the mental state that Rand is right now because Tuan sees this big dark aura around him. In fact, several people comment about that's, seeing the shadow around. That's him. the mm-hmm. best visual by the way. It's like, right. Oh, there's this darkness, but you can't see it when you're actually looking at him. It's Only like, when, out yeah, of the corner of your of eye, you can see it around him. I am not oh. trying to rob you. And Tuan, to her credit, resists that ultimately as he's like willing her into whatever he wants to do. And she resists it, but that causes all kinds of problems now, as you mentioned, foreshadowing for other books. And she says something along the lines, I wish I had the quote, I didn't mark it, but she said something along the lines to one of her generals about how the general says, like, weren't we always against the, dra- or wasn't the dragon reborn always against us? Because she's like, well, we'll see now what it's like to have the dragon reborn be against us. And he's like, well, weren't we always against us or against him? And she says, no, we were against him. He wasn't against us. 
but now he is. Because right. like he was always trying to bring them into some alliance and wasn't actively pursuing or attacking. And so that's like the way that he phrased it. And I, w- I wish I would have marked it because I'm butchering it right now. But the way that he phrased it was terrifying to me and showing them just how menacing Rand would be that she's acknowledging like, no, we were against him. We have no idea what it's like if he's against us. The way you phrased that earlier made me think of Jeff Bridges from the Tron Legacy movie. Since he, he can write that whole code, uh. walks into the bar, puts his hands down, everyone. <laughs> Boy, there's a deep cut. <laughs> Jeez. Um, all right. Well, we had better go. Uh, at some point in the future, we may bring this book up again because uh, in early books, especially book one, book two, book three, we talked a lot about free will in Randland. And there was a great discussion between Rand and Tam about free will. And I assume that that is going to uh, play out even more through the next two books. So hopefully we get to talk more about free will in Randland as it relates to the pattern and Taviran and all that stuff. And what is fully reintegrated Luz Theron Randalthor going to do? Right. Um, anyway, I'm... but we do not have the time now to talk about it. Sorry, Ken. Um, so, I'm excited for things for the future. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I am reinvigorated. Uh, I, well, I already was with book 11, but this one continues that. I'm, I'm still excited to, uh, to read 13 and 14. So let's go do that. I will probably pick it up after I finish Oathbringer. Um, and we'll see you all for that. So I'll see you at the legendarium.reddit.com where you can uh, check out the uh, thread the comment thread for this section or for this uh, episode and uh, go to patreon.com slash legendarium and go to go to gofundme to support the construction of the new studio and, uh, and i'll post some updates there and on reddit thanks everybody we'll see you next time